Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Lowe. Dr. John Vile is at it again. In fact, he never stops. Prayer in American Public Life, an encyclopedia, explores ways in which entreaties to the Almighty intersect with government, media, education, the military, and other aspects of everyday existence. The Dean of the University Honors College joins us to discuss this book after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. MTSU alum Ronald Roberts was recently elected as the new president of the MTSU Foundation, while four other alumni were appointed as new members of the MTSU Foundation Board of Trustees. Roberts, a managing partner of DVL Siegenthaler Public Relations, will serve a two-year term as president that ends in June 2024. Newly appointed trustees Michael Gaines, an agent with State Farm, Ramsey Hassan, transportation business owner, Mike Ussery, president and COO of National Healthcare Corporation, and Nashville attorney Luther Wright will serve three-year terms that began July 1st. And public servants and others can get a financial boost when enrolling in one of MTSU's newest programs this fall. Announced this spring, the new public safety concentration in the Integrated Studies major is designed for those in law enforcement, homeland security, emergency management, fire safety, dispatch, and other public service professions at the local, state, and federal levels. Classes for the concentration begin this fall. The first 50 students to enroll will receive scholarships of $500 each. The degree will give students of public safety an opportunity to learn and build upon important knowledge and skills in key areas directly tied to their work. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. John, welcome back, and thanks for being with us. It's good to be here. We pride ourselves on having separation of church and state in this country. However, prayer has been the driving force behind a lot of political movements that have changed the country, including Manifest Destiny, Abolition of Slavery, Prohibition, and the Civil Rights Movement. How do you explain this apparent dichotomy? Well, of course, we have, you know, we sort of have a bifurcated approach to religion, which is reflected in the First Amendment. Uh, we prohibit an establishment of religion. There's no official church. Uh, even state establishments were eliminated by 1832, I believe it was. May have been 1834. Uh, but by the same time, we, uh, we recognize it's free exercise. We have a government that is not attempt to further specific religions, but is generally sympathetic to uh, religious exercise. So on balance, how has the U.S. Supreme Court handled cases over the years in which the right to freedom of religion, as exemplified by prayer, has come into conflict with other constitutional rights? Well, if we focus specifically on prayer, it's sort of not not recognized in, in the 19th century. It was very common to have devotional Bible readings, often accompanied by uh, repetition of the Lord's Prayer in public schools. Uh, this created conflict among Protestants and Catholics because Protestants thought that the King James Bible, you know, was acceptable to everyone, and Catholics said, "No, you know, we not only do we have our own translation, but we really don't like re people reading the Bible on their own without some kind of instruction for the church." Uh, 
Today, when we think of parochial schools, we often think of schools that were formed in the aftermath of desegregation. Uh, but long before that, there was a, a widespread system of Catholic uh, parochial schools in the United States. In terms of prayer in school, of course, most of us remember Engel versus Vitale, 1962, when the Supreme Court outlawed uh, publicly written prayers for students uh, to repeat in school. This was followed up in the next year, Abingdon versus Shemp, uh, with a similar prohibition on devotional Bible reading and prayer. The situation's gotten a little bit more muddied. As, as you know, this last year, there's a case, well, this year, actually, that was decided uh, on the West Coast, where a football coach uh, went, went to the 50th yard line after games, uh, kneeled down and, and said a prayer that was apparently joined by other people. Uh, and the Supreme Court in this case said uh, this was his private free exercise. He was not exercising the right as a coach, but as an individual of faith. Uh, and there was no compulsion for people to join him. Now, it's one of the clearest cases of this term and indeed of any term where the two sides of the court seem to be actually not only have different opinions, but have different facts. Uh, the majority says this was his private devotion, no compulsion. And the, and the minority say, look at these pictures of all these people crowding around him and joining him in prayer. And some of them said that they did feel, you know, at least peer pressure uh, to join. Uh, there's, there was another decision two or three terms back in which the uh, Supreme Court set, upheld prayer in public meetings on the theory that adults who would be attending, these were like town council meetings, adults who, who were attending would be far less impressionable and far less subject to peer pressure than say would high school students. You know, and the, the court had, after, after Engel and after Abington, the court had further extended a prohibition to prayers at high school graduations and prayers over public loudspeakers at public school football games. So this latest, this latest Kennedy decision, you know, may or may not stay. It's, it's, it's a little bit of an anomaly, but again, it's based on the notion that he was on his own, according to the majority, other coaches, other people at this time were texting their friends, uh, participating in pep rallies or doing other things that were not uh, required by their, uh, by their job. The situation is complicated in this Kennedy case by the fact that when he first got there, there apparently was a tradition that he had that he inherited where the coach would have a prayer with the team before they went on the field. And he would later give pep talks afterward in which he would often evoke religious themes, uh, perhaps even cite prayers. Uh, the majority says, look, uh, when he was asked to stop those activities, he did. What remains is his, you know, purely private action and therefore does not represent compulsion. But again, there was there was real strong disagreement as to what the actual facts in the case were. We'll take a break here. We'll be back in a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The Middle East Center at MTSU seeks to promote greater understanding of the politics, history, and culture of this vitally important region of the world. Its mission includes the promotion of outreach programs and faculty research. The center sponsors lectures by Middle East experts and scholarly exchanges. 
We're especially pleased to offer a new interdisciplinary minor in Middle East Studies with courses in Arabic and Hebrew. This is Dr. Alan Hibbard, Center Director. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Women in Science and Engineering, or WISE, helps college women prepare for and become involved in science-related careers. WISE nurtures women's interest in these fascinating and critical fields and provides mentoring and networking opportunities. The group's main goal is to assure women of their importance in all scientific and technical fields and to promote equal opportunity and treatment of women in science. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, WISE Advisor. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. Prayer in American Public Life, an encyclopedia. The author is Dr. John Vile, who is the dean of the University Honors College and a political scientist. In what ways has prayer become ensconced in governmental actions or entities, maybe in our everyday lives in ways that we just sort of take for granted and don't think terribly much about? I knew that there were references to the divine uh, in inaugural addresses, but I'm working separately on a book on that. And I was surprised by how frequently inaugural addresses contain references to God and, and often prayers. There have been two presidents, uh, the first being Dwight D. Eisenhower, who prior to taking uh, or giving his address or taking his oath, I forget which it is, but I believe it was the address, he said, I hope you will all join me as I read a prayer that I wrote last night. And I believe one of the Bushes uh, did something very similar uh, at his inauguration. One of the institutions, which is, it's, it's not a governmental institution, but it's closely connected, is the National Prayer Breakfast, which was started uh, back in the 1950s and is almost obligatory uh, you know, for the president and for other top officials to attend. And most of them are quite well, you know, quite willing uh, to do so. Some have been fairly controversial. Uh, one, one occurred when pres- then-President Trump uh, denounced Pelosi and said, I, you know, I know Pelosi says she prays for me, but I don't believe her. <laughs> or, or she prays for me, it's not for my good. And of course, you know, the 50s were, were a time where Often political leaders use, they use the fact that we were a Christian nation, or at least a nation that permitted Christianity to thrive as opposed to godless communism. So, you know, this was the time that we added the words under God uh, to the Pledge of Allegiance uh, and adopted In God We Trust as our national motto. How did the governmental acknowledgement of Thanksgiving come to be? In fact, in early, particularly in New England, but also in, also in the middle colonies, uh, it was common to have what were often called days of repentance and thanksgiving, sometimes accompanied by fasting, almost always accompanied by very long sermons. Uh, they continued in the early republic. Uh, some presidents, uh, Jefferson was very opposed to them uh, because of you know, his concerns about separation of church and state. Madison waffled a little bit, partly because the nation was at war and he wanted all the, the help that he could get. You know, he, bl- I don't say blame, but he shared the credit with Congress and said, Congress asked me to, to issue this proclamation, so I'm, so I'm going to do it. I believe Thanksgiving became official, but I probably ought to check on this, but I believe it became official about the time during the Civil War, shortly thereafter, 
uh, and is often associated with Lincoln. But he he was not by any means the first person to offer you know days of Thanksgiving. Uh, and in fact, the the Southern states did so as well. Interestingly, during the Revolution, uh, George the Third uh, proclaimed days of fasting and Thanksgiving in uh, in England, just as we were doing it here. And you know, it leads to you know Lincoln's very astute observations in the second inaugural address that you know, which is is a puzzle that you know both sides of the conflict prayed to the same God read the same Bible, uh, and yet, you know, they were asking God to do contradicting, contradictory things. And as Lincoln said, you know, clearly God can't equally honor uh, the prayers of both. Uh, maybe God has his own purposes. You, you know, we always were, were taught that we should pray that God's will be done, uh, but that's pretty hard to do. Often, you, you know, and there are even if you read the Bible, there's, there are prayers, particularly in the Psalms, that are called imprecatory prayers, and I may not be pronouncing it right, but basically, they're prayers that God will wipe your enemies off the face of the earth, and, you know, they're, they're very real. I mean, when you read them, you say, yeah, I feel that way sometimes, too, but sort of the, Christ, the Christian approach is that we are supposed to pray for our enemies and I don't think it's just in the Steve Bannon sense. I, I heard him the other day saying uh, b- before the, the January 6th that it was time to pray for our enemies because we were about to wipe them off the earth. <laughs> I'm exaggerating a bit, of course. You know, we know in Nazi Germany that much of the, the church there was co-opted because Hitler was very good at using the symbol of the cross and using other Christian symbols uh, and basically distorting them. It, you know, the Bible says, you know, at the last judgment, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, uh, because some of them, in effect, in effect, are using the Lord's name in vain, if you want to go back to one of the commandments. I, I heard someone the other day talking about someone who said that he prayed for Putin, and I said, well, I, I hadn't come to that point, but I did pray, you know, I do pray not only for the people of Ukraine, but for the people of Russia, many of whom are, you know, fighting and dying for a cause that they did not choose and, you know, may not have chosen uh, to go were they not required to do so. Or protesting against it and being thrown into jail. Yes, yes. And of course, when it comes to Thanksgiving in this country, which is not ruled by an authoritarian regime, you can celebrate Thanksgiving as an agnostic or an atheist by simply thanking your family and friends for their love and support. You don't have sure. to believe in a divine being to celebrate Thanksgiving. No, that's right. I mean, the, the you know, gratefulness is a Christian virtue, but it's certainly not an, not an exclusively Christian one. I liked the story of how prayer was slipped into the schools through the McGuffey readers, which were standard textbooks in the mid-19th century. Tell us about them. They weren't slipped in by governmental authorities. I mean, you know, McGuffey was an educator who I believe had roots at Miami University of Ohio, and then I believe ended up his career at University of Virginia. You know, he did, in fact, you know, if you read the early stories, you'll, you'll have stories, say, Daniel in the lion's den or Daniel in the lion's den or David and Goliath and this kind of thing that were, you know, maybe the Ten Commandments or the you know, selections from the Sermon on the Mount, just like you'd have orations from Patrick Henry or, you know, speeches of George Washington. 
you know, we were we were living in a time where the United States was far less diverse than it is now. And there was sort of a generic, you know, not by any means to say that there weren't Catholics and Jews and, you know, even even various groups of non-believers. But there was this sort of general perception that Protestants, you know, most of whom most Americans were Protestants and that most Americans generally agreed on, you know, basic ethics and basic teachings from the Bible and that it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't sectarian if they were based on the Bible or one of these common sources. And, you know, frankly, one of the problems we have today is, you know, the the Supreme Court has said you can't have devotional exercises in school, uh, but there's a real need for biblical literacy. I mean, we got plenty of people in in school, you know, you you mentioned a name of a biblical figure and they have no idea who you're talking about. Well, if you can learn John Milton and Shakespeare and all the rest, then you need to have some, some biblical knowledge as well. Uh, if I, I want to go back to something, if I may, uh, one of the things that I'm most pleased about in my book is the cover. Uh, I got an image, uh, which is a very powerful image of Uncle Sam in his suit uh, with his hat off, which is very interesting in front of him, and he has his hands clasped in prayer. And this was, uh, remember, I talked about the, the National Prayer Breakfast. One of the big supporters of this was Conrad Hilton. Uh, the hotelier. Uh, he had this image uh, prepared, and then he would distribute it along with a prayer that he wrote that went with it. And so it, it actually epitomizes a time in the United States where perhaps prayer was a little bit less controversial uh, than it is today. Time for another break. We'll be right back. This is MTSU on the record. The Middle Tennessee Writing Project is a program that fosters the effective teaching of writing to students in kindergarten through high school. The project hosts annual summer institutes where teacher participants teach and learn from each other effective techniques of teaching writing. In addition, the project sponsors summer writers camps for youngsters. MTSU is one of 185 sites of the National Writing Project and one of only two in Tennessee. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Army ROTC College Program at MTSU prepares students mentally, physically, and emotionally to become leaders and promotes virtues of duty, honor, country. ROTC cadets are involved in all academic disciplines, athletics, and student organizations at MTSU. Full scholarships and tuition assistance are awarded based on merit. All cadets upon graduation will serve their country as second lieutenants either in the Army, Army Reserve, or Army National Guard. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. We're talking about prayer in American public life and encyclopedia. And Dr. John Vile is the author. He's the dean of the University Honors College, as well as being a political scientist, constitutional law scholar, and a lay preacher. Have you ever heard of the uh, beat poet and later hippie poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti? I'm not sure that I have. He wrote something called Loud Prayer, which he recited at the band's final concert, The Last Waltz. And it goes like this. Our Father, who arts in heaven, hollow be thy name, unless things change. Thy wigdom come and gone, thy will will be undone on earth as it isn't heaven. Give us this day our daily bread at least three times a day and forgive us our trespasses 
as we would forgive those lovelies whom we wish would trespass against us and lead us not into temptation too often on weekdays, but deliver us from evil whose presence remains unexplained in thy kingdom of power and glory, O man. Have you ever run into any other parodies of the Lord's Prayer in your research? I've certainly run across some rewrites. One of them actually is by Benjamin Franklin, uh, 1728, uh, that begins with our creator, O Father, I believe that thou art God and that thou art good and that thou art pleased with the pleasure of his children. It's basically sort of a rewriting uh, not quite as cynical, perhaps, as the one that you just read. But yes, there have, there have been other people who have, you know, sometimes Jesus parodied prayer. You know, we sort of forget that. But the story that he tells about, you know, the people who pray on the street corners, and then the story that he tells about, you know, the Pharisee in the temple saying, you know, thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy over there who cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says that prayer was more efficacious than the prayer of the person who was so full of himself. Prayer can, in fact, be blasphemous, depending upon what it says and who's saying it. It can. And again, I don't believe we should pray against our enemies, as, as David did in the Psalms. But, you know, if you consider prayer, as I do, to be a conversation with God, even with people, and maybe especially with people that we love. Uh, we say things that are accusatory or that show greater emotion than we would typically show in public. And I think, you know, I think God is a big enough God uh, that he probably can take care of himself in these circumstances. And sometimes, you know, after we've said it, then, then we reflect back on, you know, should I have said it that way? And maybe we gain a little bit deeper understanding than if we just try to suppress every emotion that we have. Well, you could write an entire book on prayer and January 6th, and not just the QAnon shaman, uh, the weirdo who looked like a Minnesota yes. Viking on steroids, but yes. uh, Vice President Mike Pence citing Psalm 15 when explaining why he certified the electors votes after the 2020 election, and then citing Daniel 6 as a scripture he turned to while he was hiding from the insurrectionist. What, what are your thoughts on all that? I, I think in Pence's case that prayer probably helped him make a decision which made him very popular with his own, or maybe very unpopular with his own base and certainly infuriated the president. Uh, but I think there are times when prayer gives people, as it did Daniel, the willingness to say, I serve a higher power than, you know, the president or, or Congress or whoever's in, in control, and I'm, it's in God's hands. Not only is President Joe Biden a, a devout Catholic, but I can recall back when he was vice president under President Obama, uh, he appeared at some public function with the um, cross on his yes. head because it, it was Ash Wednesday, and yes. traditionally the you go to mass and the priest will rub your the finger in right. ashes. The Episcopalians have the same same practice. Some Fox News anchor said while she was taking this live uh, that we don't know what happened to the vice president. There's something <laughs> strange on his head. We'll have to check that out, see if he's been injured, and we'll get back to you. I'm not Catholic either, John, but. I, I think I've lived long enough to know exactly what was going on there. 
One of the times that I most enjoyed, at least in this respect, is when I guess it was this, uh, George Bush, George W. Bush was president. But they would constantly put in references to scripture or to songs that would be familiar, particularly with the evangelical community. I think I caught most of them almost immediately. It'd take the New York Times two or three days to realize even what had happened, that it was sort of a way of speaking beyond the, the typical media audience, you know, to a particular group of people. And to some extent, you know, one of the interesting things, and I guess maybe because I'm Protestant rather than Catholic, but I was not familiar with this song on Eagle's Wings, which uh, Biden routinely quotes. We tap into different traditions and Sometimes, you know, these traditions and these beliefs give us greater thoughtfulness, greater attention to justice than they otherwise do. And sometimes people just use them blatantly. You, you wave a cross or you wear a cross and think that, you know, that somehow baptizes you into Christianity or, you know, that the, the particular group of voters necessarily is obligated to you. Prayer is not only a plea for guidance, but it's also a, an expression of hope. With yeah. all the public agonies we've experienced and continue to experience, are we still a hopeful people? You know, we seem in the last five, ten years at least, we have less trust in some of our institutions. And, you know, to some extent, that's American. I mean, our, our whole system is built on separation of powers, checks and balances you know, not giving any one person or even any one branch of government uh, complete authority. Uh, but yes, I mean, it, it, it does trouble me. Uh, and of course, organized religion is, has taken a hit as well. You know, COVID didn't help. A lot, of, a lot of people who were in the habit maybe of attending church have, have ceased doing so. You know, in my own experience, there's real value in meeting together collectively with, you know, with other, with other believers. I think that's, you know, true whatever one's denomination or, or belief might be. Prayer in American Public Life, an encyclopedia. Go to the First Amendment encyclopedia website, which is an offshoot of uh, MTSU's Siegenthaler Center. And you will be able to purchase a copy there. Google it. And remember, it is a reference book. It wasn't meant to be read from A to Z. It was meant for research purposes. However, if you want to read it from A to Z, that's cool, too. Dr. John Vile, thanks for being with us. Thank you. It's always a pleasure, Jim. We'll be right back. MTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Tennessee Employment Relations Research Association, or TERRA, gives labor relations specialists and academics a chance to share their views and their data. TERRA wants academics and other interested in human resources and industrial relations to work together at meetings and conferences to strengthen the workplace. Many MTSU faculty belong to TERRA, which has members in 20 states and 7 nations. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Randy Weiler has the middle moment. 
MTSU's next academic year begins Sunday, August 21st in Murphy Center with convocation for all new students and the public's invited. Andrew Forst-Hofel, author of the summer reading book Walking to Listen, is the keynote speaker. Deb Sales, Vice President of Student Affairs and Vice Provost for Enrollment and Academic Services, shares more. For freshmen, your first day of class takes place on Sunday, August 21st at 1 o'clock, and it takes the form of the university convocation. Parents, if you're planning to attend your students' graduation in four years, and if you're available, we would love to have you join us because it's just as important of an event. Convocation is when we welcome your students in a very formal way. It is a big deal. The Band of Blue, if you're gonna be playing in the band, the Band of Blue will play. The president will make some remarks. Your student government president will make some remarks, but the keynote speaker will be our friend, Andrew who's going to be coming to campus, and he will give our keynote remarks. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.